We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Welcome to Fifth Admission. I'm Dominic Fracasso. You just heard Minnesota Judge Peter Cahill there reading the findings of the jury who convicted former Minneapolis cop Derek Chauvin of murdering George Floyd. Many met the historic verdict with a sense of relief, a sense that for once, the system worked to hold accountable a police officer who brutalized and killed a person of color. The verdict, of course, follows last summer's historic reckoning over race and policing in America, one that won't end with Derek Chauvin's sentencing in a couple of months. In fact, on the day of Chauvin's conviction, there were two more police-related deaths, a 15-year-old girl in Columbus, Ohio, and a man in Alameda. Fifth and Mission checked in with a number of activists, experts, and civic leaders following the verdict. Later on, we'll hear from author and police reform expert Alex Vitale, Oakland activist Akeel Riley, and Assemblyman Reggie Jones-Sawyer, a Democrat from South Los Angeles. Let's start, though, with Melina Abdullah. She's a professor of Pan-African Studies at Cal State Los Angeles and a Black Lives Matter organizer. First of all, I want to ask, how are you holding up right now? What were your emotions like going into this trial, and what are they like now that the verdict is out? So I think that, um, like most of the Black world, I was extremely anxious going into the trial and throughout the trial, that we've witnessed and experienced the criminal legal system um, constantly act on behalf of a violent state and against Black people. And so we were bracing ourselves for the system to, again, um, really, I want to use the word betray, but I don't even know if betrayal is the right word at this point, right? So constantly assail Black folks. And um, when the verdict was read and uh, Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all three counts, I breathed a tremendous sigh of relief. Um, I allowed myself to experience a moment of joy and really kind of celebrate the fact that the organizing that's been done, the protests that we've been engaged in for almost a year at this point in the name of George Floyd, as well as all of the work that we did leading up to this moment, the eight years of Black Lives Matter um, engagement, the Black Lives Matter moment in Black freedom struggle is bearing fruit and that we are seeing some accountability and some semblance of justice in the name of George Floyd. Of course, it's not the win, but it is a win. I want to read you something that Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison said today, shortly after uh, the verdict was announced at a news conference. He said this, He said, I would not call today's verdict justice, however, because justice implies true restoration, but it is accountability, which is the first step toward justice. In hearing hearing what you just said, it sort of reminded me of those remarks, which I jotted down uh, this afternoon. What do you you think when you hear that from the attorney general? I think that's absolutely right. This is not justice. What would be justice? Uh, would be that George Floyd was still with us, right? What would be justice is that we don't have to know the names, Dante Wright and Adam Toledo and Malika Bryant, who was killed today 
15-year-old girl in Columbus, Ohio. And so justice means transforming this world so that it's fit for the uh, our people and so it's also fit for our children who will inherit it. Melina, this this trial provided the nation with this really intense focal point on the issue of police brutality against black and brown people in America. But it, it seems to me, and, and listening to you now, that this is about so much more than than one incident, than, than one murder. I, I want to ask, where does the movement for black lives go from here? Right. Well, what it's a reminder of, again, is the power of the people. People's organizing are what pressured the system into even charging Derek Chauvin. People's organizing is what pressured a system to make sure that we didn't get an all-white jury, right? People's organizing is what pressured a system into recognizing that should the verdict be um, unjust, should the verdict continue to double down on injustice, there's going to be repercussions and there's going to be necessary uprising. And so what it reminds us of, what it reminds Black Lives Matter of, and anyone who said those words, Black Lives Matter, or uttered the name George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Aubrey, or any of those killed throughout this country. Um, There's more than a thousand people killed at the hands of police each year. Um, It reminds us that we cannot stop today. We cannot stop Um, just because there was some semblance of justice, just because we got a a fair verdict in um, the Derek Chauvin trial. We have to continue to double down. We have to continue to push forward. We have to continue to struggle for real justice, which means defunding the police, which means reimagining public safety, which means creating a world where our people are housed and healthy, um, and we have to continue that work. My last question for you, Melina, what are some of the concrete reforms? Like, If this verdict, limited as it may be in, in the overall movement, or, or, or confined perhaps is the better word, as it might be, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the concrete reforms. You mentioned some just just, just now, but I wonder if you could help us sort of uh, uh, put up a, um, not, not a target isn't the right word. I wonder if you yeah. could just talk about some, some of the concrete steps that you would like to see en route to some of the broad, the broad reforms that you just talked about, if in fact this verdict can be a springboard to, to important, better things? Sure. Well, we need to remove police from spaces that they don't belong. And of course, frankly, I don't believe they belong anywhere. But we're very clear that police are not mental health workers. And so when there is um, an incident, an issue with somebody um, having a mental health challenge, we need mental health workers to respond to that without police. Um, We need to remove police from traffic stops in the name of people like Dante Wright, um, in the name of people like here in Los Angeles, Keith Bercy. Um, We need to um, decouple children and family services from police. Police don't belong on um, uh, foster, don't belong, shouldn't be involved in child safety issues. We need social workers for that. So steps forward mean minimizing the role of police. And that, again, is 
is, is part of what we mean when we say defund the police. We mean remove them first from the places that they have no business, remove them from schools, remove them from transportation systems, and reinvest those dollars in the things that actually make communities safe. Melina Abdullah, thank you so much for the time this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Alex Vitali is a professor and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He's also the author of the book, The End of Policing. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome, Don. So the uprisings, Alex, that came in the wake of George Floyd's killing, I expect will go down as a truly historic movement against police brutality in this country. Can you talk about the role that that movement played in today's verdict? Yeah, I think we have to understand the verdict, however problematic it may turn out to be in the end, as at least in part a product of the movement, in the sense that I think we saw pretty concretely ways in which the city of Minneapolis, the police department, decided that they were going to let Chauvin go in the sense of let him go from the police department. They were going to testify against him and help build the case against him. And this includes the prosecutor's office. And this is very rare. Police, you know, convictions of police officers are extremely rare. And usually the departments are part of what protects these officers, a kind of closing of ranks. And I think in Minneapolis, a decision was made that it was better for the city if there were a conviction in this case. And I think that's the direct result of the kind of popular pressure that we've seen on the streets in the last nine months. Alex, what, if anything, does this this guilty verdict today, what does it do to change policing in the United States? This was, you know, a a killing and a trial that riveted the country um, and that we saw every square inch of. Uh, does it does the the attention paid to it uh, and and the aftermath, you know, inspire anything in you to say this is actually any kind of sea change in the way policing works in the United States? I don't think so. I, I wish it were otherwise. And I I feel for the families who, who want to have this sense that some justice is done here, but I don't think we should confuse that with the belief that this is really going to change policing in the United States. I mean, the police have been under intense public scrutiny for about six years now with the killing of Mike Brown and and, and Eric Garner and so many others. And the number of police killings remains unchanged. And during the trial itself, with a national spotlight, total national attention on this, the number of police killings hasn't changed. And, and a killing right down the street from the trial under very you know, questionable circumstances. So to think that somehow one jury verdict towards one officer in one high-profile case is going to miraculously transform our whole approach to policing in the United States seems seems unfortunately naive. I, I would be reticent to not ask you then, what are the things that need to change? What are the levers that need to get pulled? Well, you know, while the verdict is an expression of the power of the movement, I don't think it's the only expression. We've seen some pretty concrete changes around the country and some momentum for more. We're seeing uh, cities decide to get rid of school police to create non-police mental health crisis response capacities, to put more money into solving homelessness rather than criminalizing homelessness. And some of this is about pulling money out of policing, and some of it is about creating new sources of revenue 
but all of it is about trying to figure out how to produce more public safety with rest with less reliance on policing, which is the core demand of the movement. Alex Vitali, professor and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. Alex, thanks so much for your time. You bet, Tom. Stay with us. We'll take a quick break, but Fifth and Mission will be right back after this. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Akil Riley is an activist and organizer who helped mobilize tens of thousands of people to march together in Oakland this summer in support of Black Lives and against police brutality. Hi, Akil. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks so much for being here. So, uh, Akil, how are you processing the this verdict right now? I mean, take take me from you know this summer, you know when when all of this was was still so fresh and raw to the end of this, you know, painful trial today. Uh, how are you uh, making sense of all this today? I don't know how to feel about the win personally. It's not a win for me. I, I would say that. I'd see if anything, this is a win for um, people fighting in the name against uh, police brutality, but more specifically, if anything, it's a win for his family. Um, I think that is most important. It's his family above everything. I say that to not discredit um, what I'm about to say, which is, I don't know where what this means in terms of the system, the system of racism and capitalism and and um, police, bruta- police brutality as a whole and what it means in stopping that. Because um, as we've seen, um, I, I, some a girl actually got shot and killed by police. And um, I just saw an article in Columbus, Ohio, not too long ago, um, saying that to say that I don't know if this will stop police brutality as a whole. Help, help us understand, kill where where things need to go. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in, in terms of what needs to be dismantled, what needs to be reformed, what needs to be transformed? What are what are some of the concrete steps? Like to, to the extent to which what happened and this verdict can be the beginning of something or are the beginning of something, where do we need to go? That's something I still have to think about, honestly. Um, I don't think there's there's one answer, um, but there's not one way. But um, like I've said before, in, in the way that uh, we're schooled, I think the way that we're educated and um, the way we think about policing, where funds are allocated to, the amount of force that police have, the privileges that they have, how they're viewed in society as gods. And... Um, they're um, well. When I say as God, I didn't. I mean as people above the law. That's kind of what I meant. And above society, but there's a number of things, and I haven't pinned down that exactly. I think it's just a, it's a complicated issue, but there's cer- certain things that we can do. Was this my last question for you, Akil? Was this was this day ever on your mind? last summer as you you know were 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 organizing were leading this march that you know drew 15 20,000 people in Oakland was, yeah. was that ever on was it did this day ever kind of like cross your mind when that when you were in the thick of that yeah it did does it feel like does it feel like today like you thought it would 
I, I honestly didn't know what to expect. I, I couldn't I couldn't give a definitive yes or no because as we've seen in the past, things don't go our way all the time when in, in cases like these. Um, I wouldn't. I don't know if I would have been surprised if he if he was um, if he wasn't convicted. I don't know if I would have been surprised. Mm-hmm. Well, Akil Riley, thank you so much for the time this afternoon. We appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having. California Assemblyman Reggie Jones Sawyer joins us now. Good evening, Assemblyman. Good evening. How you doing? I'm um, all right. Thank you. Sir, you issued a statement shortly after the Derek Chauvin verdict today saying you plan to start crafting policies that replace what you called the warrior mentality present in many law enforcement organizations to replace that with community-based skill sets. Could you tell us a little bit about, about what you have in mind and what those reforms might look like? So let me just, just say that I, I hope this brings some relief, uh, especially pain relief for Mr. Floyd's family. I mean, really, unlike um, what happened with the Gardner family or Sandra Bland family, Rodney King and the millions of African-American bodies destroyed since 1619 from the slavery movement, um, at least the Floyd family have some satisfaction that justice is done. Uh, And so it's our responsibility now. What I what I say is probably the same thing that um, uh, Clyburn, Congressman Clyburn said, we talk about all these bad apples. And we look at this ground and see all these bad apples on the ground. And we talk about getting rid of this bad apple, that apple. But we never talk about where did the apple come from? It came from the tree. And we never talk about the, 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 the fruit of the tree. And we never talk about that the problem is at the root of, of the fruit. And we really need to get to that. And so as we move forward, we need to go address systemic racism, um, the fact that, that um, Law enforcement principles and practices and policies are based on slavery and how they capture runaway slaves and to be able to reform or transform um, uh, police officers or law enforcement officers. Because I believe we need to start by transforming from law enforcement officers to peace officers, because when you're a peace officer, and you walk into a situation, you're not very hairy. You're not a law enforcement. You're not trying to put people down. But you're trying to establish peace. And that's when you get into all the new things that people want to do as far as criminal justice reform. And so uh, what's coming through my committee right now is uh, as chair of public safety for the California State Assembly is a discussion on how can we transform law enforcement and look at the mistakes that were made in the show trial and what was done there so we can move forward. So we have individuals that we hire that don't want to do the same thing. I don't want somebody that want to be a police officer to do the same darn things they're doing right now. I want to get somebody with, with that's mature, with a college education that says, I, I want to join the force, but I want to be a peace officer. One aspect in, in talking about peace officers, and obviously, you know, it's going through committee. There's a lot of a lot of work yet to be done legislatively. But one in our neck of the woods, for example, in San Francisco, in Oakland, there are programs launched that, for example, 
are attempting to get police officers out of confrontations, situations with people who are undergoing a mental health crisis, for example, to, to remove the law enforcement, the sort of weaponized aspect to those, to those confrontations, to those engagements with people. Is that one element of the sort of peace officer? Is that, is that something you could see yourself supporting that, that part of it? Yes. And that's why, um, when I talked about getting it from the root of the fruit is that, we hire people to, for example, 25 years old, my bill AB 89, uh, the Peace Act specifically goes toward that. If, if you get someone that's 25 years or older, um, they're more mature. They can handle having a gun. We're giving 18 year olds a gun and a license to kill. And then we put them out on the street um, to be able to do law enforcement. We need them to be mature. And, and quite frankly, and I don't mean any disrespect to the, to the males that may be lead, listening, but most women will tell you that most men don't mature to their 30. So why would you give that person a gun to go out there and enforce laws? Two, they're also interpreting laws, whether or not you get a felony, whether or not you get a misdemeanor, or whether or not they let you go. And they have to interpret that law. Almost, you're almost like a lawyer. And that could have dramatic impact on your rest of your life, whether or not you get a parking ticket or you end up in jail um, uh, long term. And so we need people with college degrees who also are used to being around other people. Because when you go to college, you meet a lot of different people from a lot of different places. But most, what I like the most, you get to debate verbally how to, how to deal with situations. And you can have arguments as opposed to you, you want to use your fists, you, you want to use your mouth to, to be able to articulate in a way that, that will calm down people. And, and we can do the de-escalation. But if you're, if you're a bit of a, of a, of a warrior type of mentality, you're going to do what, what you do best. That's part of the tragedy of what the female officer, she went to warrior mentality. She thought she, whether she thought she grabbed her gun or not, she pulled out something that was going to protect her and was going to protect her in a way, unfortunately, that resulted in someone dying because that's, that's almost like that muscle memory and what, um, what humans do. So we don't need that type of individual in law enforcement. We need people that can decipher the difference. Given the tenor of this conversation so far, I, I might already know the answer. But is it safe to say that that in this moment and what was a, a, a traumatic and a deeply painful you know, moment for, for, for the country and, of course, for George Floyd's friends and family? I mean, do you think, though, that this is the moment for statewide police reforms or, or transformations, as you described it, that this could be a, a springboard to something that's that's really palpable? Uh, yes. For, and, it's, and it's not because of what African-Americans are doing. It's not even what the California Legislative Black Caucus is doing. I think because of cameras, uh, um, people who are non-minority, not poor, they're actually seeing things that we said. Um, if you remember, and, this, and have been saying for a been, long time, for a long time, um, it wasn't until they showed pictures of African-Americans being lynched that America said, I know you told me they do that. I know that you told me that do your fear of the Klan. I know you told me about white supremacists. But is that what they do? Because you know, when you sit that Emmett Till photo, what, her, what his, his courageous mother did by showing America how brutal white America was to us, I think it shook 
white Americans who normally would just sit on the sideline, they got involved. We're going to win this because white America gets involved and makes the changes. Um, we've already demanded, demanded, demanded. We've got to get everybody, API, because they now can know that they're under attack. Latinos understand they want to send them back somewhere. We are now under attack. And so um, we've got to come together and, and say that we've got to stop it. And I don't think we really had that before. Um, and I think the big advantage has been you can actually see it and how brutal it is when, when even to this day, whether you're, no matter who you are, when I hear people say, you know what, I, I, it really bothered me. But when George Floyd, as big as he was, cried for his mother, that hit, I mean, it, every man or woman just kind of said enough is enough. My last question for you, sir, as you as you go about this business of of reformation and transformation, I wonder what sort of hurdles do you see in your way? I mean, police unions are still well funded; they're still powerful up and down the state. Uh, what what are you, uh, um, you know, legislatively, you know, lobbying wise? What what hurdles do you think that you're going to need to overcome uh, as you as you work to kind of shepherd this to the finish line? Uh, I, what we've got to do, because a lot of uh, um, police unions um, use the term victims um, to try to push for more for, for, for us to go to felonies and for us to be able to, to prosecute us and put um, more time that we spend in prison or in jails. And, and they use the word victims that we've got to do all this because of victims. When we also say that that is brutal. That is really bad. But when they start talking about the family members of victims that are beaten cruelly by cops, African-American, when they're shot in the back, when 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 people start seeing that as the same. And that both of are horrendous, both should not be done. Um, I think when we get when we show that compassion for both sides, I think we'll be able to, to change law enforcement in a way. That has never been. We shouldn't let them use that as a way to further criminalize um, people who are poor and, and disadvantaged and can't pay for bail, can't, don't have the money uh, to hire a very good attorney. Um, we can't let individuals weaponize the criminal justice system. Assemblyman Joan Sawyer, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Our thanks once again to everyone who spoke with us today to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. I'm Dominic Fercasa. Catch you next time on Fifth and Mission.